Welcome, my Dystoblicans. I'm Raul Guerrero, and you are listening to the Dystopian Republic. Today's story begins on the morning of January 3rd, 1857. Vermilions from every honest, decent walk of life gathered outside their country's capital building. Their legislators sat around the pedestal where the president was to speak and be inaugurated. When that leader was introduced, he revealed himself to be Habsburgo Jr., smiling at the thunderous ovation he received from the people who elected him. His dress was only a notch above those of his audience, presenting him as one of their own. Many of the wounds coloring the crowd were the cuts and bruises marking his skin. Having waited so long for the moment before him, Habsburgo Jr. thanked everyone for their perseverance and all the sacrifices they made. He promised his people that their defeat of Habsburgo Sr. wouldn't go the way of their triumph over the Mexican Republic. Habsburgo Jr. vowed to see to it that his father's terror never happens again, declaring his special day as the start of an era of community, justice, and freedom. His first act as president was having every Bromelian work with him to clean up the destruction and rebuild the nation brick by brick into a glory the world would envy. That undoing of the damage defined the first term of Habsburgo Jr.'s presidency. Soon after being re-elected in 1860, his people wasted no time paving horse-friendly roads, building public libraries that were congressional in nature, rearing farm animals, cultivating wine grapes, growing wheat, and sawing timber. By the time Habsburgo Jr.'s second term ended, Bromelia's economy was more alive than it had ever been. His successor Catalina made sure his policies continued, but she established soup kitchens that helped the unfortunate survive. Her two terms focused on the nutritional and financial well-being of those abottom the income pyramid. Catalina wanted her presidency to be remembered for getting Bromelia's poverty rate as close to zero as possible, setting an example future world leaders would follow. Carlisle Valverde Sr. became president when Catalina's tenure came to an end in 1873. It was his chance to convert his calls for respecting one's elders, appreciating those who follow the law, and punishing the wrongdoers into policy. In 1881, Carlisle Sr. left Bromelia brighter than an angel that couldn't live with itself if it did anything wrong. In the midst of the three presidencies, the children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren of the Mexican Republicans who ruled the nation prior to its independence desperately tried to win back the good graces of the people their patriarchs 
and matriarchs oppressed. They propped up six conservative candidates who lost to Habsburgo Jr. in Catalina, plus two liberal ones whom Carlisle Sr. defeated. Their efforts to convince the Bermelian people that their family lineages had seen the error of their ways went on deaf ears. The three generations' assurances that they didn't hold the attitudes that the heads of their families held were met with omnipresent skepticism and remarkable cynicism. But as the 1880 presidential election neared, a man who sought to be a bridge between the Bromelian nationalists and ex-Mexicans revealed himself. He wanted the two factions to bury the hatchet for the good of their respective peoples. This man's father was a remorseful ex-Republican, while his mother was a devout nationalist. Born in Lobotown but raised in Clemente, he was none other than Ferdinand Lobo XIV. During the campaign, he published an apology that was signed by thousands of men, women, and children whose bloodlines were red, white, and green. Ferdinand XIV acknowledged the physical and mental brutality his ancestors utilized to assert their rule over the Brumelian people. He denounced every governor, administrator, and officer who had any involvement in the oppression, calling them no elders of his. Ferdinand XIV repeated the assurances that those before him had made, swearing on his life that the ex-Republicans' longings to be Mexican again were gone and never coming back. The important thing for him and people like his father, Ferdinand XIII, was for Brumelia to truly be millions of a single kind united under a star and three stripes. At every rally he held, Ferdinand XIV read his apology word for word to supporters, skeptics, and cynics alike. Its sincerity cracked the distrust many Brumelians had for ex-Republicans like Ferdinand XIII opening their minds enough to hear his son out. This would prove critical in giving Ferdinand XIV a fighting chance against Carlisle Sr.'s vice president, Eugenio Sr., whom many saw as the favorite to win. Their election battle wasn't like previous ones where Brumelians had to choose between continuing what Habsburgo Jr. started and ending that progress in favor of an untried vision. Ferdinand XIV and Eugenio Sr. wanted to build on top of what their predecessors erected. Having said that, the two candidates had very different ideas as to how to make Brumelia better than what it already was. Ferdinand XIV focused his campaign on taking the nation into a financial age other world powers had entered. Eugenio Sr. campaigned on keeping Bromelia's economy domestic and off the hands of the money changers. At its core, the 1880 election pitted the potential of financial markets against the certainty 
of independent commerce. Eugenio Sr. viewed his first run for president as his best and only shot at achieving his lifelong goal. He was the mayor of Catalina Coast from 1861 to 1865, governor of La Costa del Norte from 1865 to 1873, and vice president immediately thereafter, doing all that before his 33rd birthday. Eugenio Sr. saw the baggage weighing his opponent as a spot weak enough for him to deliver a coup de grace that would win him the presidency. His distribution of drawings that depicted Ferdinand XIV as a puppet of Mexico were spread far and wide. He ranted about his opponent's apology tour being a ruse meant to provide him and his Republican buddies cover for their subjugative agenda. Eugenio Sr. yelled that Ferdinand XIV's goal was to restore Brumelia's status as 10 Mexican states, going as far as disparaging Mexican Brumelians and Mexicans in general to get that message across. He promised to severely limit immigration from other countries and would not allow those from Mexico to apply for citizenship or temporary visas. Eugenio Sr. stressed that such measures were necessary to keep the Bromelian experiment going, scoffing at any accusations of him being a racialist. He made sure people knew that he loved the Mexican people in Mexico, saying that Bromelia was for Bromelians only. His rhetoric caused Ferdinand XIV, his supporters, and the three generations to endure weeks of threats, insults, and even violence. It forced some in the Lobo camp into hiding and got many more to carry loaded guns everywhere they went. Once that happened, the acts of hatred mellowed down to an insult or two here and there. Ferdinand XIV made it known that he would not let a racialist like Eugenio Sr. menace him into withdrawing his presidential bid, expressing his dismay to see such a bright, promising young man stoop to a low no one had fallen to since the days of Habsburgo Sr. That refusal to back down was the point when the election went from solidly favoring one candidate to being a contest either man could win. By the time Eugenio Sr. realized that his rhetoric had backfired, it was too late in the election year for him to walk back on what he said. He tested out his pedals back on small crowds of Ferdinand XIV supporters who booed and jeered him out of every building he was in. All Eugenio Sr. could do now was hope that he had enough support to win, relying on the very rhetoric that got him into trouble in the first place to galvanize them to vote. But that time around, many Brumelians began doubting his sincerity, which Ferdinand XIV used to portray him as a hateful renegade who only cares about himself. 
during this time, Bromelia's populace had grown very protective of the progress their nation had made since its first presidency. Huge majorities of that population were unwilling to elect anyone who'd put those accomplishments in jeopardy. This made the landslide election victory Ferdinand XIV achieved over Eugenio Sr. unsurprising. That win was an overdue catharsis for Mexican Bromelians such as the Three Generations. Ferdinand XIV's win was so decisive that Eugenio Sr. won only his home province of La Costa del Norte, but that wasn't the last that the former would see of the latter. Adding salt to an already brutal loss, Carlisle Sr. condemned the racialism that fouled what should have been a spirited yet friendly election season. Eugenio Sr. didn't need to be mentioned by name for him to know that he had lost face with his ex-superior. However, he did find a silver lining in the support he still enjoyed from most La Costa del Norteans. His rhetoric made his home province more loyal to him than it had ever been before. To the shock of most outside La Costa del Norte, Eugenio Sr. was elected to the Federal Assembly in 1882 where he remained in office until his very public expulsion for corruption and theft in 1890, staying out of the public eye for the next nine years. Days after his inauguration on January 1st, 1881, Ferdinand XIV took the Bromelian dollar off the silver that relatively flatlined its value for decades. This allowed him to print the money necessary for him to incentivize the creation of federal, provincial, and municipal banks across the country. Ferdinand XIV wasn't the first to inflate the currency as his predecessors did so to bring their historical contributions into fruition. But the need to mine silver was the big reason why Habsburgo Jr., Catalina, and Carlisle Sr. had to spend wisely and responsibly. Now that the Bromelian dollar was backed by a different metal, Ferdinand XIV could print as much money as he wanted, and boy would he. With the banks now up and running, he introduced his people to the world of credit. In previous times, the Bromelian people earned what they worked for and spent only what they had. Ferdinand XIV had his financial staff teach them about getting money now and giving it back later, plus a fee for servicing the loan. He relieved the worries many Bromelians had about paying back their debts by requiring the loans to have near zero fixed interest rates and rock bottom monthly payments. Ferdinand XIV insisted that borrowers be given 35 years to pay back their loans, believing that'll give almost all people enough time to come up with the needed funds. The first two years of his first term 
broke Vermelians into a practice that had previously been foreign to them. Ferdinand XIV's political dominance during the 1882 midterms gave him enough time for the fruits of the financial age to finish growing. Gone were the days of his people having to not spend a cent more than what they earned. Bromelians could now get as much money as they wished and feel confident that their incomes would come to suffice in paying it all back. Since no one had to prove their ability to repay prior to taking out their debts, many borrowed as much as the banks would allow at one given time. The loans had balances that ranged from just a few cents to amounts well into the thousands and millions. Vermilions walked, jogged, or ran out of banks with bulks of dollars, looking like looters who've struck big with their charges inside. Some grew concerned about the massive amount of debt that their country was accumulating in such a short period of time. Their worries were squashed post-haste when many large businesses found themselves to have the funds necessary to expand beyond Brumelia. Those companies opened up shop in the Kingdom of Hawaii, Washington Territory and District of Alaska. The Baptist preacher's son who was president at the time didn't mind the acute arrival, falling head over heels for the immense riches his Brumelian visitors possessed. Ferdinand XIV's efforts to expand his economy globally went very well because most abroad believed that his coins and dollars were still backed by silver. His richest and most powerful subjects did a great job in telling the story of Bromelia being the motherland for said precious metal, having quantities of it larger than entire mountains. Anyone who wanted to speak out about the scheme taking place either did not have the power or wealth to do so, or were dealt with before their cries could be heard. Come the 1884 presidential election, Ferdinand XIV won as easily as he did four years earlier, repeating that outcome in 1888 and 1892. Plus, the 1886 and 1890 midterms saw him preserve his legislative and judicial majorities across Bromelia. Most of Ferdinand XIV's people thought the money trees he planted would perpetually break loose their leaves and sprinkle off their seed pits. Habsburgo IV had memories of being gifted thousands of dollars from Habsburgo III on an annual basis. Burr Jr. watched in awe as his father, Burr Sr., and all his friends made millions from their businesses. Walpole remembered breaking piñatas that were stuffed with coins as a child, thinking that she and other children would grow up to be rich like their parents. Hamilton made a profitable living from the little grape juice stand he started with his family's money, growing that one table into a full winery in the span of a couple years. Howbeit, there were tens of thousands of Bromelians who saw the scheme Ferdinand XIV was perpetrating for what it was. 
yet they made the decision not to speak out due to the assassinations and disappearances he was carrying out to keep it a secret. Those thousands instead focused on hoarding the money that was created before 1881. While the dollars and coins in question weren't made anymore, they were still considered legal tender for purchases of all types. Eugenio Sr. would get in on the hoarding business himself, engaging in it before, during, and after his tenure as an assemblyman. How he and others managed to garner millions of that wealth would be a secret they'd closely guard, remaining unseen and untold for over a century. Eugenio Sr. used most of his wealth to purchase Catalina Island from the Aragones days after the summer school. He ran closed for the fall, winter, and spring. Although he could now build the compound he always wanted, he was left with only a few hundred dollars. Eugenio Sr. spent weeks dwelling in his despair over him and his family, eventually dying of hunger and thirst. But when Desiree was digging for rats one hot morning, she unearthed a heavy chest that contained thousands in gold backed dollars and coins. It erased Eugenio Sr.'s hopelessness and had him wondering if he'd come upon what many had been searching for but failed to find. After he, Desiree, Eugenio Jr., Eugenia, Barclay, and Kira brought their nourishments back to a good state, they dug up the island and discovered a hundred chests exactly like the first one. The Regalados came to the unreal realization that they had found the treasure Habsburgo Sr. hid shortly before his death. They now possessed a wealth that no person or family in Bromelia could even devise an attempt to rival. The one thing that haunted all four presidencies was the $100 million that were unaccounted for. Before anyone could be suspicious, a silversmith in the United States found no silver on the dollars. Ferdinand XIV claimed that his currency was backed by. Further evaluations gave him no doubt that the metal was in fact an element he'd call Ferdinandium. Like what Pyrite did with gold, its properties fooled most into thinking it was real silver. Infuriated and physically ill over his discovery, the silversmith immediately notified every bank he knew held Bromelian dollars of his findings. Other workers like him soon arrived at the conclusions he came to, presenting their findings before Congress. Their testimonies would not have happened had the banks they contacted not used their power to convince congressmen and senators to listen to what they had to say. Convinced and hell-bent on making Ferdinand XIV pay, America's good Grover announced that the United States would no longer be accepting 
per million dollars as legal tender, designating it as a currency worth less than old soiled handkerchiefs. Word of the scheme would spread to other countries that held Bermillion dollars or were about to, angering them into cutting off the currency. Within weeks, Bermillion businesses saw every shop they had abroad be shut down. Their leaders and subordinates were run back to the mainland, which was how Ferdinand XIV found out that his scheme had been exposed, showing him that the Bromelian experiment's days were numbered. Despite their grudges, the United States, Great Britain, France, Denmark, Belgium, Spain, Portugal, Italy, Mexico, Sweden, Norway, Switzerland, and the Netherlands shared a desire to wage war on Bromelia to get back what its president had stolen from them. But every one of those nations would not go through with their offensives when it came to their attention that the plague had broken out in the country. It started when a group of teenagers snuck into Ferdinand XVI's 65th birthday party. Then the plague became a pandemic after Bromelia's 49th, 15th of October celebration. To prevent the outbreak from wiping out his people, Ferdinand XVI instituted a national quarantine that shut down the economy and his society as a whole. He ordered his federal army, provincial guards, and municipal militias to keep Bromelians from leaving their residences and shoot any civilians roaming the streets. Ferdinand XIV advised his people against relying on the government for necessities or protection, saying that only those around them could provide that now. He had neither an estimated time or date as to when the quarantine would be lifted, but said it could last anywhere from a few months to several years. People like Hobsbugle IV, Bird Jr., Walpole, and Hamilton were fortunate in that where they lived grew tons of fruits and vegetables, having reliable water sources too. The vast majority of Bromelians found their hungers and thirsts hard to satisfy and quench. Many were able to hunt for food and scoop up water outside the eyes of the heavily armed troops, but some either couldn't find such essentials or were shot on sight. The risk of being killed by gunfire or the plague didn't deter several thousands from trying to flee Bromelia. Families such as the Cerebos, Zamits, Kojos, Baharias, Metidos, and Mangawas succeeded in fleeing to the United States. All too often, however, the end results were voyages that never began or stopped without reaching land. Bromelia's next five years saw it sunk in a famine many feared would go on forever. The landscape was littered with unmarked mass graves and big piles of burnt corpses. Towns and cities that jumped and shouted with life were now squalid, miasmic urban jungles. 
troops kept themselves alive by consuming bottled water and emergency rations. Most avoided getting sick through the use of face masks and militaristic bodysuits that covered almost all places where skin could be exposed to the elements. This made for extremely comfortable winters but caused their summers to be absolute scorchers. Eventually, the time came for Ferdinand XIV to end the quarantine, a day that would forever be known as Dark Christmas 1898. It was after he cancelled the 1894 and 1898 midterms as well as the 1896 presidential election. By the pandemic's finish, a million Brumelians had died of the plague from malnourishment or been fatally shot while countless more fell sick, survived going hungry and thirsty or were wounded. Inside the presidential castle's walls, the quarantine learned not to lay a finger on its furniture, food, or water wells. Life for Ferdinand XIV and his closest companions went on like it was still 1892, eating, socializing, and sleeping like kings and queens. The castle was the only known location where no cases of the plague had been confirmed. Made to have the look of a populist, Ferdinand XIV hummed his gladness that the plague had finally been contained. That sweet tune carried over to how excited he was to announce the return of normal life. Ferdinand XIV expected to be met with the same fanfare Habsburgo Jr. enjoyed 41 years earlier. Ferdinand XV wasn't so sure if the people about to hear his father speak would meet his optimistic remarks with smiles, hugs, or kisses. His son, Ferdinand XVI, was in search of a chance to dash out of Bromelia with his little brother, Gregorio Sr. They sensed the bitterness and frustration building in the house children who tended to them. Ferdinand XVI's sugary smile fell to a nauseated frown when he saw angry mobs in all directions growing more violent with each step closer to the castle. He couldn't believe the depths of savagery his people were falling to as they battled police. Making matters worse, the house children and servants he fought were loyal to him, ambushed his wife, son, and his family, running into a maiming match with castle guards. The million-person mob was too much for the 10,000 who stood between them and the castle. Their charge flattened Ferdinand XVI's defensive perimeter and leveled the fencing that encircled said residence, letting the total breach and inner assault meet. High on its first for blood, the now single insurgency searched through the castle but did not find the Lobo family or any of their close allies. That revolt wasn't unique as similar rebellions raised all ten provincial governments and the hundreds of municipal ones nationwide. 
Not a full 24 hours went by before all facets of Ferdinand XVI's control over Bromelia had been expunged. He and most of his supporters and fellow elites fled the nation or went off the grid, but a few had the misfortune of enduring deaths that crushed the soul and brutalized every limb. How Ferdinand XIV evaded the approaching mob remained a hotly contested topic. One theory that made the rounds was that there was a clandestine route that led him and his family out of the castle and down into a valleyed pit only they knew existed. Hiding in a blinding forest and sitting 310 feet below sea level, the base that would be Ferdinand XIV's new home had no shortage of fresh water and edible life. The Lobo spent all of 1899 and 1900 transforming their valley into a little village that didn't need the people who shunned them. Their minds sporadically conjured up concerns that an outsider would find their settlement. The longer they stayed hidden, the more certain they were that the rest of their days would be quiet and peaceful. In spite of the successful escape, Ferdinand XIV was no less dejected about his own people turning on him after everything he did for them. He wondered what part of giving Bromelians all the money in the world was so bad hearing stories of his country's least fortunate finding themselves exponentially richer overnight. Ferdinand XV fought back tears watching his father age much faster in two years than he did in the previous 30. They ignored the aging by building rowboats with the trees they chopped down and bags of nails Ferdinand XVI stole from the castle's workshop. The Lobos rode with and against the stream of the lake-like river that flowed into the ground via caverns no taller than their legs. Their minds relaxed to the gushing waters and swimming fish, relegating their falls from grace to distant memories. Come the start of 1901, any traces of hurt in Ferdinand XIV and his loved ones were gone. Gregorio Sr. snuck out of his parents' house for yet another one of his late-night hikes up the slope and two miles from the valley. Wanting to take a peek of what lied beyond, he found a newspaper, someone discarded, feeling green and turning white at its front page. Needing to divulge what he just read at once, Gregorio Sr. rushed back into and down the valley as the sun rose to his family's hours-old search for him. His attempt to tell his fellow Lobos about the newspaper collided with Ferdinand XIV's frantic scorning of him for stupidly putting himself and everyone else's lives in danger. Ferdinand XVI wanted to give his brother every piece of his anger for making him pay for another one of his incautious adventures. 
Ferdinand XV muffled and restrained his potentially regrettable rage, then told Gregorio Sr. that he better have a good reason for roaming off and putting the secrecy of their village at risk. Part of Ferdinand XIV desired to violently shake his grandson for his stupid action, yet something in him yearned to know how things were going in Bromelia. Gregorio Sr. showed his family the newspaper he found and said that their old friend was back. The Sunlighter's front page highlighted Eugenio Sr.'s near-unanimous victory in the 1900 presidential election. It lowered the curtains on a time period that the Bromelian people would come to know as the end of the old and start of the new. That transitional stretch of months brought to naught 49 years of progress, wiping out the bulk of the power possessed by those who made it possible. Campaigning as a uniting nationalist, Eugenio Sr. renounced his racialist views in favor of an attitude that placed a big portion of its care on loyalty. He told his critics that they may think he's that racist renegade of yesterdecade, but he at least had nothing to do with their nation's destruction and near demise. During his January 5, 1901 inauguration, Eugenio Sr. told the Bromelian people that the new century will erase all that afflicted the old one. His years away from them had humbled him into placing more care on the wider society than on himself. Eugenio Sr. urged Bromelians not to think of his rise to power as the end of what made their nation's 19th century so prosperous. He vowed to carry on and expand the good, but do so without amplifying the bad, calling for the Bromelian dollar to be backed by real silver again and not the Ferdinandium that disgraced it. Eugenio Sr. said that the 20th century will see Brumelia achieve its destiny as the world's superpower. He admitted that it's unlikely he'll live to see that happen, but was sure that the generations after his would have that privilege. His vice president, Carlisle Jr., as well as Desiree, Laverne, Hobsbugle IV, Bird Jr., Walpole, Hamilton, Eugenia, Eugenio Jr., Barclay, Cura, and all their former summer school peers sat at his side. Eugenio Sr. insisted that in order for Brumelia to complete its turnover to a new leaf, the wrongs of the past must be righted. He called on provincial and municipal governments to assist their federal superior in bringing those responsible for the quarantine to justice. Eugenio Sr. told the men and women who were in Ferdinand XIV's administration that the people will deal with them and free their young from their evil. The newspaper was the Lobos' worst nightmare coming true, destroying any hope they had of living in peace. Crying out his rancor, Ferdinand XIV 
told the Bromelian people to have it their way. For him, Eugenio Sr.'s rise was his subjects stabbing him in his back and spitting on him while he was down. Ferdinand XIV yelled that such treachery necessitated a punishment that the history books were write about for centuries afterwards. No longer caring about being president, he committed himself to eliminating Eugenio Sr. and his school of miscreants. Caught up in his resentfulness, Ferdinand XIV took his Bromelian flag, ripped it off its pole, and set it down onto the dying bonfire. Seeing it gradually being devoured by the flames, he was unable to recognize where he was anymore, declaring the Bromelia he knew and loved as being dead and cremated. Ferdinand XIV's loved ones breathed in his mourning, but Gregorio Sr. took that sorrow a little harder, stamping on his brain a sight that would stay with him for life. Others of his kind who were in exile were in almost identical states of grief as their patriarchs and matriarchs made similar vows. And as fate would have it, the vengeances people like Ferdinand XIV so hungered for would do more than seal untold futures worldwide. And that was the end of an old era. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to the story I just gave. Share this show with everyone you know. Make sure they share it with everyone they know. Check out my website at www.rss.com slash podcasts slash the dystopian republic. Send me your respectful questions and constructive feedback at Raul Guerrero Jr. 95 at gmail.com. And lastly, support the show via my PayPal at paypal.com slash paypalme slash Raul Guerrero Jr. On that note, I'm Raul Guerrero and come again for another gripping, thoughtful, and sinister episode of The Dystopian Republic.